we continue to look at the Old Testament prophets. Today's prophet, if you have your prophet cards with you, if you have picked up a prophet card, hold it up at this time. If you don't have a prophet card and you see other people are holding them up, that's because the prophet cards are on the back table there and you can get one on your way out. If you want them from other weeks, we have them also. We are just looking at all these different Old Testament prophets. Today we're looking not at the Italian prophet Malachi, but actually the prophet Malachi. I'm calling my message rant or effective. It comes from what happens sometimes when people will bring a concern to me. They'll come into my office or we'll meet somewhere and they'll just start spewing out all the things that is wrong with how they've been treated, how somebody else is, a change that needs to take place. Sometimes it could be something in the community, it could be somebody in their family, it could be a co-worker, and I will eventually look at them and say, is this about ranting or being effective? Because if you'd like to rant, there's a place for that, and that can be helpful just to get all that stuff out. But if you're looking to be effective, that's very different. You see, being effective isn't ranting, because if we just go and we rant at someone, they don't change. All they do is they put up barriers and put their hands up and walk away. So the question that it really asks is, how do we affect change? How can we be agents of change? How can we help others when we see things that we're concerned about? And that becomes a model of really how does God bring change in our life, in our world? Enter the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament, and that's what's great. Some of these are really not that hard to read. So if you'd like to read through it, I encourage you, even when we're looking at Jeremiah, to read through all of Jeremiah, but to read through Malachi, it's a relatively short book of a few chapters, and so after this, you can go and you can read through it and renew the thoughts about this passage. Malachi also happens to be the final book of the Old Testament, and I want to set a little bit of the time period for you. In 586 BC, roughly 2,500 years ago, the nation of Israel had been divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Think much like happened in the United States during the time of the Civil War. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And the Israelites had been defeated and conquered by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom was gone. And then in 586, the Babylonians came in and by war defeated the southern kingdom they destroyed Jerusalem, they took the people into exile, and they went and they destroyed the Jewish temple. So in Jerusalem, the temple was utterly in ruins. We think about things like the story of Daniel that we looked at, and how that takes place during that time of captivity, as these people are carried off into Babylon, 586 B.C., then something amazing happened, because God is sovereign. Even when things look bad, God's in control, amen? can look as if things are in utter ruins, but there is a sovereign God who's doing work even when we don't see it. Well, that also happened during those intervening 50 years. As the people are in captivity, the Persian government comes in and defeats the Babylonians, and now once Persia is in control, they basically look at all of these people who are in captivity, and they said, why are there so many Jewish people living here? Let's send them back home. So in 538 B.C., they start sending the people back to Jerusalem, to all of Judea, to all of Palestine, 
and the exodus again takes place as people come and return back home. They also, at that time, when they get back to Jerusalem, look at the temple and they say, we need to rebuild the temple. Our temple's been destroyed. And so they start working on the temple, and 20 years later, they've had prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, and now the temple is ready to be dedicated, and we call that the second temple. So you get Solomon's temple, this becomes the second temple. Then during that time, the people start saying, Originally, when they get back, you know, we know what we did wrong. We didn't live faithfully for God. We weren't loving and kind. We didn't treat the strangers the way the Bible teaches us. We haven't been faithful. And look at what a horrible thing that we went through. We're going to get it right this time. That horrible, bad thing happened. We lost our temple. We lost our country. God's given us another chance. And so they're with great enthusiasm. They are absolutely sure that they're going to do different but they were human beings like we are, they immediately became complacent. Isn't that what happens? The big tragedy takes place, and we know that this is going to change us, and then the old complacency sets in. It reminds me of a couple of years ago, I was driving over by Colony Place, and, you know, the, the light wasn't pink. There isn't such a thing as pink, according to the cop whose lights went on behind me. As he decided to pull me over, I ended up in the end getting a warning, but that was it. I am always going to, from that point on, follow every traffic law perfectly, which I did for about a week. <laughs> because that's what we do. Then complacency sets in. And one day I remember thinking to myself, why have I gone back and forgotten about the fact that I ended up actually having to go to the courthouse and had a little hearing there, and I was feeling a little bit less than great about it, because normally when I'm there, I'm helping someone else, and when I walked in, they looked at me and they said, Reverend Cushing, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, that was going to change me. It doesn't. As much as we think that that horrible thing, we look at somebody's life and we go, they're going to learn this time. Look at what happened. I know this is going to change them, but the story of Malachi is that's not what changes us. I read a book this last year called Immunity to Change by Robert Kagan. He's a professor at Harvard. And his book was about why is it that we fall into complacency? Why is it so hard for us to change? And he looked at a study that was done when doctors tell heart patients that they will die if they don't change their habits. And what he discovered is only one out of seven people change. Hear that? The tragedy of having your doctor look at you in the office and say, if you don't make these changes, you will die. That in and of itself only makes one out of seven people change. Because change is a much deeper thing than just that bad thing. So if you have somebody in your life that you look at and you say, well, this experience is finally going to be the thing that changes them, that's not what happens because this is life. Crisis passed, now what? And that's why Malachi shows us how God directs change in our lives. And so we're going to hear that about how God wants to bring about change for you and me, but also then how we can affect change and positive change in our families, in our communities, in our church, and in our world. And it starts with that four-letter word, love. That's not just us being nice to people and saying, you know, people want to hear about love all the time. That is what the Bible teaches over and over and over again about God's love and God's love for us. In 1 John, John is writing and he's describing God and he says, what is God? God is love. Remember one person one time who used to say to me, 
Sometimes when I think of God, rather than thinking of the word God, I just think of love and it helps me just understand who God is. We are beloved, loved people. Amen? That was our theme of our annual meeting yesterday. You are a beloved community because God loves every single one of you. But other communities are also because, as Jesus taught, for God so loved the world. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, now you have to understand the Corinthian church was the wealthiest church that there was. They had everything going for them. They're the great little seaport city. They had more money. They had more programs. They had everything else that was given that they could possibly have. They were the most gifted church, but there was one problem. Their behavior was awful. They were immoral. They treated each other poorly. They were jealous. They had squabblings. They had infidelity in their marriages. They had families that were falling apart. So what does Paul do? Does he rail on them? No, he writes them four letters, two of which we find in our Bibles. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this to that church in helping them change, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul started with love. He said, you're loved. Before I can tell you things you need to change, you need to get this fact straight. God cares about you and loves every individual and every group and all of you, even when you're doing wrong things. Where did Paul come up with that concept? Well, he certainly learned it from Jesus. Jesus teaches that. What are the great commandments? To love God and to love our neighbor. But he also learned it from prophets like Malachi, this final prophet in the Old Testament. Because if you look at your cards and you turn to the back of the cards, down on the bottom, you will see the Bible verse that we give you, which is the beginning of the book of Malachi, when Malachi starts talking to the people about their complacency and their need to change. And he said, I have loved you, says the Lord. If we don't understand that, we miss so much of why people don't change. You see, you may think that you have a family member that you have pointed out 150 times what they do wrong, and maybe if you just have pointed out for the 151st time that it'll probably finally sink in, but that is not what the Bible teaches us. What the Bible teaches us is if you have a family member or somebody that you really are struggling with, try loving them unconditionally. Hear me? It's what God does with us begins with love, begins with letting us know we're cherished and valued. Because we can't speak truth into people's lives, and even Malachi knew that he couldn't speak truth into the people's lives without first establishing that God loved them, and everything that was going to be talked about is for our benefit so that our lives can become better. I'm involved with a number of small groups in this church. It's one of the wonderful things about Faith Community Church. We have enough small groups that I don't have to teach, therefore I get to attend and one of them is our Friday morning men's Bible study, which we do on Zoom. We have people from all different states who come to it. And this last week, the guy who was leading it, I think is from Vermont. Again, it's, it's, sometimes I forget where people are from because we're just little things up on the screen. But he was leading it, and he decided to lead it on what he called a love walk. And I thought, now there's a macho title for a bunch of guys on Friday morning. But in the process, he explain this. He said, let's look at these Bible verses that talk about love, because that's what God is. God loves us, 
and change comes from love. And then he told a story about his neighborhood. He said in the neighborhood that he lives, he lives on this long street and they have a cul-de-sac, he said things started getting wonky in our neighborhood. And all of a sudden, there was a neighbor that was doing some things that other people didn't like, so they started complaining about it. Then somebody else sided with that neighbor. Then there were two people, and things started getting divisive. And people started to say negative things about each other, and gossip started happening. And he said then he found himself involved with that. We've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> we're all of a sudden in an environment in which things have gone, and all of a sudden we're kind of part of the problem because we're just entering in. And he said, then I realized what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches love. So he just said, I decided to do a love walk. And he says, as many days as I can, I go out and I walk through my neighborhood. He said, I also have a dog, so I have to be out anyhow. And I make sure, first thing, is everybody I greet, I smile and I say, hi, I hope you have a nice day. He said, then he realized he also had talents and he could help people. So he started encountering people and he said, hey, is there something I could help you with? He just wanted to be a loving neighbor. So he helped people move air conditioners. He helped people fix stuff on their house. He helped people with yard work. He said, he even helped somebody take out the trash. He said, what's weird is our neighborhood started to change. Not because of me, but because of what God does when we love. And he said, all of a sudden, people started to act differently and talk differently. And part of it was him that he no longer would enter into any kind of negative conversation. That's what Malachi teaches us. Change begins with being loved. God changes us because God gave his son for us. We are loved people. We are cherished and cared for by God, and so is every other person that you're going to encounter, including the people that you don't like. Amen? And you have people you don't like. Amen? We all do. And so Malachi helps us to see what real change is. And then the next thing we learn in the book of Malachi is chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3 give us what I call the big three. That is not Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. Nor is the big three Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, and Larry Bird. But rather, the big three are the three things that need to be addressed for real change to take place. And so in each of the chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Malachi takes these on and shows what needs to happen for real change to take place. Chapter 1 deals with moral leaders, chapter 2 deals with strong families, and chapter 3 deals with personal integrity. Let's look at moral leaders. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, because we're not going to read through the entire chapter, I do ask you to read through Malachi yourself. If you struggle with reading, take the message or take the New Living Translation that we gave to the young people. It makes it easier, the language. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Malachi says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am father, where is my honor? And if I'm master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priests, notice who he's talking to. He's talking to the priests, the leaders in the temple. You despise my name. But you say, how we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? 
Do you hear what the priests were doing? They were the moral leaders of their community. They were the ones that when the temple gets built, they're the ones who are, are the leaders of Jerusalem. And the priests were self-seeking and only cared about themselves. Now, I know that's hard in the 21st century to imagine there could be leaders who only care about themselves, but that's what happened in the days of Malachi. People would bring stuff in, and they would say, oh, this is great. We're having a donation today, and they're bringing in the animals, and we're going to give some offerings to God, and they kept the best for themselves, and they go, well, that lamb's not very good. We'll give that one to God. It was all about what's in it for me. Moral leadership matters. Moral leaders who care and bring about change will bring about change. But when there is no moral leadership, everybody else just dissolves into doing their own thing. And whether we like it or not, that becomes a big part of what's wrong in our world today, much like the days of Malachi. The question is, do we hold our leaders accountable? Not do we hold somebody else's leaders accountable, do we hold our leaders accountable? So whatever you have as a place where you feel that you are connected, let's not look at someone else, because you know what? I've noticed this about America. Everybody who takes a side sees everybody else's leaders as corrupt, but sees their own as good. And what Malachi asks us is, are leaders accountable? If you go to a church and your leaders are not moral and acting properly, there's a problem. If you align with any place, any organization, or any institution, and you can't say these people represent how things should be, they don't have to be perfect, but they have to be moral, then we need to be asking the question, are we holding people accountable? And likewise, when you and I become leaders in our life, because there's always going to be places where we lead, are we acting moral and proper and right in the ways in which we conduct our affairs, whether it be in our families or whether it be in business or any place where we lead? Malachi knew that if leaders are corrupt, real change will never take place. Do you hear that? Malachi knew that if he didn't take on the leadership, you're going to just rail at the people for things that they were doing. These people basically go, hey, I'm just following what I've been taught. I'm following how other people are acting. The second thing in chapter 2 he looks at is strong families. Verses 13 and 14, Malachi says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, the people complained about their problems, but they were unfaithful in their own families. Husbands and wives were not keeping their marriage contracts and covenants with each other. Parents were not acting properly towards children, and, and children were able to do whatever they wanted and act with disrespect, and the families were falling apart. People will complain about why change doesn't take place, but do we look at families and how we support and establish strong families in our community, in our church, and in our world? You see, Malachi knew the importance of families. It is absolutely essential. And so if we are concerned about our society, what are we doing to strengthen families? What do we take on personally and as a church and as communities to say we care about the families here? Because I'm sorry, folks, I'm in a family too. Families can be tough places because that's where we rub the closest with each other. 
number of years ago, I started with the first time I had opportunity to work with people in recovery. And a good friend of mine came to me and he said, I want to teach you something about working with somebody who is in recovery. He said, if you want to judge the quality of somebody's recovery, see how they treat each other in their family. He said, anybody can go to a meeting and stand before 100 people and talk about what great lives they have, but the question is, how do they treat their spouse? How do they treat their children? How do they act when they're in their homes? Well, this isn't a story or a sermon about recovery. This is a story about Christians. The same thing is true for all of us. We can all stand here on Sunday morning, dress up and say, let me tell you how to live a perfect Christian life. The question is, how do we treat each other in our families? How do we value our own families? How do we value our own children, our grandchildren, nieces and nephews? Not just at Thanksgiving either, all the time. And how do we establish strong Christian families? That's why this year at Faith Community Church, we are doing, and I hope you noticed, not a Christmas pageant, but a Christmas family event. That's by design, because we're saying we want families to come together to have a family activity as a family as they go to these different places in our church to look at what it means to be a Christmas season as a family. So people say, oh, that's just a children's event. No, it's not. It's a family event. Alan and Carrie, you get to come to a family event at Faith Community Church. That's what it means. It's about families and establishing the importance of families. Because you see, in the church, sometimes we do the same thing. We take the men, we send them one place, the women, we send somewhere else, the youth, we send them here, the kids, we divide into different age groups, and we don't do anything to bring everybody together. It's important to understand what Malachi is teaching. If change is going to take place, if we're going to see our church be strong, our community be strong, our nation be strong, our world be strong, what are we doing to encourage and strengthen families? Amen? It is absolutely essential, and it's what we need to be about as Christians. And then, on the last of the big three, having talked about leaders and families, and he said, then it becomes about personal integrity. How do I live before God and before others? Are we honest people? Are we people who say what we mean and mean what we say, but are not mean when we say it? Are we firm, fair, frank, and friendly? and our dealings with others? Are we honest and people of integrity, that people can count on us, that when we say something, they don't say, oh, that person will promise you anything, but they'll never deliver anyhow. Verse 14 of chapter 3, Malachi says, you have said, it's in vain to serve God. What profit is there of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the lords of hosts? You see, the people were complaining because they were looking at what others had and they said, okay, I'm living faithfully, but come on, God, they're doing better than me. I, I went to church three Thundies in a row and somebody else got the promotion. I prayed all last week and then my neighbor got to take a vacation better than any vacation I've taken. And what Malachi wants us to understand, it's not about what's in it for us. It's not what's in it for me, it's a different question. What's the right thing to do? That's the question that we're asked to ask as Christians of ourselves. Not, do I get everything right? Not, do I make everything perfect? But do I live and learn to live before God a life of integrity? Now, I know it's always interesting when we look at politics and political figures in our society, 
But one of the things that I like to do is I like to go to presidential libraries. And you know what I've learned about presidential libraries? They tell you one thing. They'll tell you the same message. This president was the greatest president ever. They'll tell you the same story. President ends their time, build a library, and that president is better than anyone else. And trust me, I've been to enough of them that I know they all have the same theme. I still enjoy going to them and, and going through them. But a while ago, it's not quite as ancient of history as the time of Babylon or the time of the Persians. It's almost that old, for those of us who lived through it, was the 1970s. Do any of you remember the 1970s? We're dating ourselves here. You got it. Well, here's why I think it's interesting to talk about the 1970s. I asked somebody one day who they voted for in 1976, and they told me, and then they came back to me later and they said, no, actually, I think it was the other person. They didn't remember who they voted for. So that's what's good about talking about the past. But in the 1970s, we had a president who today, if you ask this president, because he's now an elderly man, as is his wife, and they have had a very solid Christian marriage, characteristics of what this person is or what we think about this president, the first things that come to mind are Christian, deacon in his church, Sunday school teacher, and in retirement, a guy who decided to spend his time building houses, Jimmy Carter. He realized it was about how he lived. But at the end of the day, people are going to have their opinions about your policies, but the question is, what's the character of who you are as a person and what's your personal integrity? And Jimmy Carter explains why those are the things that are most important to him. Because he said he was a young man in his little Baptist church in Georgia, and there was a sermon that was preached that really hit him and made a difference in his life. And he said the sermon had this theme, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And he said, that's what I want to be remembered for. The rest of his life, he said, people are going to disagree with policies. But how are they going to think about me as a Christian, as a man, as a husband, as a person of integrity? That's why, as you look at all your presidential libraries, you will actually notice that Jimmy and Rosalind Carter did something different. They don't want to be remembered for their presidential library. So right beside their library, they built something else, which is called the Carter Center for the purpose of advancing human rights and, activating and alleviating human suffering. They've also claimed to do everything they can to make it nonpartisan and care for everyone because they said that's what they want to be remembered for. And I know, I guarantee you, when President Carter dies, there's not going to be a lot of conversation about his presidency, but there'll be a lot of conversation about who he was as a man, as a Christian, and how he conducted his affairs with people. That's what Malachi wants us to understand. Affecting change in this world is about us understanding that moral leadership is important, building strong families is necessary, we need to be doing all we can, and then we have to look at our own personal integrity. How do we live? Can people trust us? Can people know that we mean what we say and we're fair and open to working with everyone? If you want to influence others, you can rant at them, you can yell at them, and you can tell them everything they do wrong. I've got a different suggestion. Try committing yourself to Christ 100% in absolutely everything that you do. Make Jesus Christ the absolute center of your life and how you conduct your affairs, and you'll be amazed how much influence you have in this world. John Wesley said, give me, he's talking about male leaders, 
said, give me 100 men in England who live completely for Jesus, and I can change the world. That's what Malachi teaches us. And then finally, Malachi helps us understand, finally, we have to be honest about consequences. Otherwise, we become light and fluffy and we don't stand for anything. And Malachi doesn't do that. Remember, he's a biblical prophet. He says things a whole lot sternly than I do. And chapter 4 becomes about consequences. But here's the point. Never lead with consequences because if we lead with consequences, we're ranting. I can't believe you're doing that again. If you do that again, you know what's going to happen. And people tune us out. And yet that's so often what we do in our world. But that's not how God changes our lives. God doesn't come to you and tell you all the things you do wrong. He begins with this message. For God so loved the world. You're beloved. You're loved by Jesus. He gave his life for you. You're offered salvation. You're offered forgiveness. And so if we're going to affect change, we're going to have to do it by finally being honest about consequences once we've established a loving relationship with people and looked at the importance of leaders and families and personal integrity. Now we have the right, as Malachi had, to speak truth to people. And we should never avoid the difficult conversations. Because if they're done in the right context, then we can now have the difficult conversations because we're loved and we're respected. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. Malachi says in God's words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's interesting, Malachi gave clear instructions in this chapter and throughout his, his whole prophecy on how to live and how to be, treat people with respect, how to honor those who are vulnerable and how to honor and respect authority. And then he says, and remember, God's always going to point out to you where you need to be changing. In fact, he's going to send you Elijah. There's a little problem with that. Elijah lived 400 years earlier. So he wasn't looking forward to Elijah. He was saying, you're always going to have Elijahs in your life. You're always going to have, there's always going to be in this world places where we are having to face the truth of wrong behavior. Because here is the truth. And it's something that people want to avoid. Choices come with consequences. Amen? I'm going to say it again. Choices come with consequences. Amen? Somebody said to me something one time that has always profoundly affected me. They said, you know, I'd like to tell you that chocolate cake has no calories in it and you can eat chocolate cake all day long, but if you do that, you're not going to lose any weight because it still has calories. Unfortunately, too often in life, it seems like we want to act as if consequences aren't there. Yes, how we live matters. The decisions that people make do lead to to consequences. And Malachi is clear about that. Now, I love running, and I still am fortunate that I can do a little bit of it into my 60s. And I also have been proud of the fact that I've had two boys who've run cross-country. And cross-country, I think, is an awesome sport except for one thing. And I see this happen all the time on cross-country teams, that cross-country coaches want as many kids as they can get on their team. So they dupe them all with this. They say, you're all on the team. You all get to run every single race. 
And kids get all excited. Wow, it's a one sport, they say, where everybody gets to compete, everybody gets to be part of it. So the kids all come out, and they, they are there all year, and they're running. And then all of a sudden one day, and I've literally seen different coaches do this, stand before the kids and say, okay, season's over. And the kids will say, no, we still have like three or four more races. Oh, no, no, no. That's only for the top 12. The rest of you can all be dismissed now. And I've seen kids go, what do you mean? Oh, no, no, everybody knows. Well, no, everybody didn't know. Everybody knows that only the top 12 get to go to the end of the year and only the top seven get to run. Now, I was talking to David about that, and he said, you know what's interesting? When he went to Whitensville Christian School, Coach Vanderbond didn't do that. He was honest throughout the year of the consequence of the choices the kids make, where they would be, and what they could actually work towards, whether they could be able to make the top 12, or maybe you're just going to be running to do the best you can this year. That's okay. Your season will end at this time, but you've got more years to come back and be part of this team. Because when we give this illusion that everybody's a winner and everything means everything, I still remember the time that my son got a trophy. And he looked at me and he goes, it doesn't mean anything. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, I got this for, for what I did, but my participation trophy was great, big, and huge. He goes, I just don't get it why we do that. And I said, it's because we have a hard time talking about consequences. So Malachi didn't rant, but instead he was effective. But he was effective because he realized that for us to have change in our world, for us to have change in our lives, it needs to begin with love. God's love for us and our unconditional love for others. And then we have got to be able to deal with the big three. Moral leaders, strong families, and personal integrity. And that doesn't mean we look at everybody else and how they're doing it, but how we're doing it. But finally, let's never shy away from the hard conversations. Folks are essential in life. When we have the relationship with others, just like God's relationship with us, we have the right then, we earn the right to have those conversations. If we avoid them, we're just acting as if the truth is not the truth. Malachi is the prophet who didn't rant. He's a prophet who looked at a group of people who had become complacent like we become in our lives and gives us a model for how to change. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to each of us. We thank you that as much as this world changes, there are things that are still very much the same. We thank you for the way in which you worked not only in the lives of the people thousands of years ago, but continue to do the same today. Help us to faithfully live for you and to do the things we can in our own lives to bring about change and to help others and help us always begin by establishing love. That if we get it all wrong, at least we could begin with letting people know they're cherished, that you care for them, because we know that in the end it is your love that brings about all change. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>